Hi everyone, I'm Brian Vickers and thanks for joining the session. Um, let me just give you a, just a short little bit of a bio about me. Um, I am a professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary right here in Louisville and I'm, I'm here in my office today. Um, the second thing I should probably tell you is the back of my chair is broken, so I can't stop it from doing this. And I recorded, I recorded other sessions yesterday, not realizing I've gone back and I've gone back and watched them, and I'm sort of like this the whole time, right? Like I'm rocking. I'm gonna try to stand, sit still, but it probably won't work too well. I've been involved in uh, GMHC since around 2007, when I was first asked to, to uh, give a breakout session. Um, as a result of actually one of my colleagues, a very well-known colleague of mine, was not able to do it, so they kind of called me in. And uh, I always joke and say, hey, you know, once you let me in the door, it's really hard to get rid of me. So I've hung around all these years. It's been, I, I mean, to say it's been a blessing to be involved in GMHC is, is an understatement. It is one of, it's honestly, it's one of the highlights of, of, uh, of, my, of my year, but not just my year, my life as I've met so many great people that I would not have met otherwise and gotten to know so many different organizations and agencies and such a bigger vision for what is actually happening in the world. Um, and so if you're new to GMHC, uh, welcome. It's a little bit of a strange year to, to uh, join up, uh, but Lord willing, next year we'll be back together um, next November 2021, if we can get 2020 gone. Um, that we'll meet together face to face then. But anyway, again, welcome. And just let me give you a quick overview of what's going to happen here today. Uh, this session is broken up into two, as you know, and I'm going to take the first part uh, where I'm just going to deal with the topic of poverty in the Bible. And then my friend Nathan Cook is going to come and, and deal with issues of sort of misconceptions uh, about poverty. I wouldn't call it like half theoretical and half practical. That's not the way it's going to sort of shake out. But I am going to try to focus, because of what Nathan's going to do, I am going to try to focus on just exactly what does the Bible have to say about poverty and the poor. And I think this is extraordinarily important um, because let me put it in, let me ask you a question. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I, I know you're a Christian. Give me a Christian view of poverty. You know, and what would you say? Right. I'm, and I'm not saying there's just one thing you would say. I'm just asking you to like, let, let that run through your mind really quick. Um, what would you say about it? Or if somebody came up and says, well, you know, what does the Bible say about poverty? I'm sure we'd all have something to say. But the thing is, is Whatever we say, whatever would come out of our mouth in answer to that question, that is our theology of poverty, right? Whether you would call it that or not, or whether I would call it that or not, that's what it is. So I just want to take a few minutes and focus primarily on all the various ways the Bible talks about both the topic of poverty and the poor. And the thing is, is the Bible speaks in lots of different ways. And I think we, if we're going to be distinctly Christian in our talk about poverty and the poor and then actions to take um, and what we're going to do and what we're going to be involved in. We need to understand what it means to be sort of distinctively biblical about these about these issues. Now, it's really, really common 
to start a talk about poverty with stats. And so I'm going to do that really briefly. Right. So these are just some general stats and I'm not going to read through all of them because you can see them. And, uh, you know, you can always pause and and look back and and, and really what I want to do today is sort of provide a uh, a uh, resource that you, you could just keep and look at and you'll have sort of some, here's some stats. You know, these stats are not really up to date, but also what I'm going to do is provide you with sort of lots of kind of biblical background and foundation that you can use however you might want to if you find it helpful. Right. But stats like this are great. And we sh every Christian should be aware of stats like this. I mean, they're and these stats are honestly, these are not quite up to date. They're a few years old now. And as we all know, stats like this have a way of being underestimated, right? So, and especially now, given the events of 2020, right, that are just sort of churning on, I think, in fact, it's it's been shown that uh, all these sort of stats about, about poverty, uh, you know, in this, I think these are specifically to this country, uh, to, to the United States, these are going to be, need to be radically um, redone and, and sort of rethought right but you can see right there's overwhelming poverty these are these would be you know you can see the different sorts of categories uh, not long ago i was giving her some more here's some more stats i'll let you look at those as i as i talk i was giving a similar talk um about poverty in the bible and afterwards i got a little bit of flack um because i hadn't mentioned things like the effects of western imperialism uh, on poverty worldwide, and that I hadn't uh, addressed large socioeconomic issues. Now, it's not because I don't have maybe any interest in those things, and there's some of those things I couldn't speak to any more than, say, somebody who's just informed by, you know, the minimal um, kind of background and information. But one of the things I want to try to do, though, is I don't want to just leap leap out into gigantic universal issues where sometimes we end up and we leap out there and we get out there and then we're just we're just sort of talking about this needs to be done and then also criticizing other people who are apparently not caring or changing things or causing the problem, right? So in other words, when it comes to an issue like poverty, it's really easy for us just to kind of get swept away in talk and swept away into areas or levels where, quite frankly, it has m not much to do with day to day. Am I, Brian Vickers, what am I doing in terms of the poor around me, right? I think it's important that we talk to and uh, talk about global, uh, national, and large-scale sort of even, uh, sorry, large-scale local issues, absolutely, we need to. But we need to figure out what sort of distinct thing are we bringing to the table as Christians? And more importantly, what are we actually doing, not just are we getting on board with like sort of a big, large social critique? And remember, I said not just, right? I mean, we live in a world where it is we live in a world where it's really easy to be one or the other, right? To be in one extreme or the other extreme. And so when I say not just, what I mean is we can't just be talking about 
big issues about which we can really only talk and we can't really act, right? Um, so, and again, I mean on a very individual sort of level. That's all I mean. So let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. I'm going to do what I always tell my students not to do, and that is don't ever saturate people with tons of Bible texts. But because of this setting, and if we were live at GMHC, uh, I wouldn't be doing it this way. But because of this setting and because you can pause and look and because I want I want this to be hopefully something maybe you could hold on to and use or you could at least remember the or, or you know you could at least remember and keep a hold of the bible references i'm going to do this a little bit differently right so first of all the bible speaks about poverty in really really broad language um and I, I won't read all these i'll just read sort of one or maybe two of each slide so the poor in the bible they, you know, that word does refer to people who are financially, materially impoverished, right? Just a very common way of, of using the word the poor, right? So in Exodus, right, if you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, right? So there's singling out people who are impoverished. Uh, you must not be like a creditor. You must not charge him interest, right? And notice it implies the reality of poverty and the poor among them. It's not simply a vision of financial sort of equality, right? It's it's understanding, right? We can talk about we can talk about idealistic visions of of you know equality, but the thing is is what again this is a very practical application here in Exodus 22. It is you know you have the poor among you. Um, if you lend to them, do not lend to them like you're a banker, right? And you're going to get interest. So it's taking special note, special special care, uh, realizing that you know the person you're dealing with. Or uh, Psalm, because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord, right? So here, obviously, there's a, a, a people who are identified as poor in, in, a, in a similar way that we would use the word. But here you get, here you see, it's not just identifying them in a socio uh, social way or in a just sort of financial way but in terms of people who have been oppressed as a result of their poverty and God says I'm on their side right so uh, and again uh, Isaiah chapter 3 the Lord brings this charge against the elders and leader, leaders of the people you have devastated the vineyard vineyard the plunder from the poor is in your houses right so again it's god taking special note of what is happening to the poor as they're being oppressed and i think that we can probably assume that all the at the various sort of incidences that this was referring to was not always just people like consciously doing it right the the poor being oppressed and God says, there's nobody on their side, right? And, and I'm, I'm positive, I'm positive as much as I can be, that people doing the oppressing, not all of them are super conscious of it, but that doesn't sort of get them off the hook, right? The idea is that God is pointing out, he's making it publicly known that the poor are being oppressed and people are taking advantage of them. Um, the poor also, sometimes implied, uh, refers to uh, economic social status and those in need of help and assistance who are at the fringes of society right so the bible speaks about the poor and poverty in this way um 
you know, Job, for I rescued the poor who cried out for help and the fatherless child who had no one to support him, right? So here the poor are included on groups of people who have no support, no one to help them. They are marginalized. They are in positions of, uh, you know, they're in positions where they're, they can't help themselves, right? There's no way they can just sort of pull themselves up. And, you know, this is Job. This is um. It, this is from the book of Job. But in you know, in 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 Luke, New Testament, you have something else, uh, something similar. So the servant came back. This is this is from a parable, and reported these things to his master. Then in, in anger, the master of the house told his servant, "Go into the streets, alleys of the city, bring here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame." Again, the poor included in people who are um, marginalized in society, but who also receive special attention from God and his people. And then James 127, this is a very familiar text. Uh, uh, pure and undefiled religion is this before God, to look after orphans and widows in their stress and to keep oneself sustained from the world. Now the word poor is not there, right? But widows and orphans, just like now, right, are not typically people who are in positions of financial security, right? They're, they can be marginalized, but the idea here is a, they are unable to help themselves. They're, um, they're marginalized by their social status and their ability to rise out of it. Um, the word poor can also be used in regards to helplessness in the, and in, in need of God, right? But as for me, poor and in pain, let your salvation protect me. God. And I think here the word poor is not only sort of referring to financial status. It is referring to helplessness and need, someone in need. And so here the word poor is not only financial, but you could also say maybe it's spiritual, right? Though I wouldn't want to make it, honestly, I don't like making big disconnects between physical and spiritual things. But I mean, just, you know, just to help try to explain it. Um, you know, the poor or the oppressed or the humbled, right? Uh, that is, the, or the humbled, that is those who are not proud. But that's a positive thing in the sight of God. Psalm 18, for you rescue an oppressed person, but you humble those with proud eyes, right? So in other words, God here is on the side of the marginalized or the oppressed. Um, 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? And again, I'm not saying that humble um, or oppressed, that those are synonyms for poor, but the idea is that you can see throughout the Bible that these various sorts of descriptions of people who are unable to help themselves are singled out as those who receive special recognition from God. And the reason I think that's important uh, for us is not just to say, you know, God cares about the poor. Anybody can say that. It's true. But God provides, how does God provide that care for the poor? through his people, right? So it's not enough for us to say, God cares for the poor, therefore we should care about the poor, and then just say it, right? Because the idea here is that things are happening, right? Uh, that, that people are reaching out, that people are doing things other than just naming people who live in poverty. Um, the poor can also be used as a figure or a description of those who are saved. Um, isn't it true that in just a little while, this is Isaiah 29, 29, Lebanon will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. On that day, 
the deaf will hear the words of the document, and out of deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see, the humble will have uh, joy after joy in the Lord, and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now, what I would su suggest is this, and that is that deaf and blind and humble and poor are not limited to what we might call um, literal readings of those words. I'm a little hesitant to use that word, but um, so in other words, those who are, uh, the eyes of the blind will see, I think refers to something beyond simply those who are physically blind. Um, and this is a picture of salvation. Now, obviously it doesn't discount, and I'm not saying it doesn't mean what it you know, clearly says. I'm just saying that the words like poor, just like words like blind, just like words like deaf, um, those words can have meanings in the Bible that are descriptive, right? Used almost like, you know, almost like as metaphors, if you will, um, for describing people who are in need of God, right? The people who were blind, that is, who did, could not see God, who did not know God, or who maybe had turned away. There's any number of categories that might include. Those people one day will see, and I think this is the, a promise. Um, moving right along, this is a really long this is a really long um, Bible passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11 is a great text just to be familiar with uh, because it's so explicit about the Bible and its vision of God's people actively working to help the poor. And like I've said, like I said before, it's not enough for us to say the Bible talks about poverty God is on the side of those who are poor. Here's a text that shows that for a Christian and understanding what the Bible has to say is not just sitting back and making statements. Here's what the Bible says, right? Um, so if there's a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city, uh, city gates in the land, the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Instead, open your hand to him, freely loan him enough for whatever he needs. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of the canceling debts is near and, and you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing, right? Uh, give to him, don't be stingy. I'm just sort of skipping along here. For there'll never cease to be poor among you in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to the poor and needy brother in your land. So this is a really interesting text. Like take verse nine, for instance. What is verse, verse nine? Verse nine is taking away the option of saying, I gave at the office, or taking away the option of saying, the way I help the poor is I give, you know, at my church. Now, I'm all for giving at your church, but, you know, verse nine is saying, is saying just because you have this seventh year of Jubilee, that's what it's called, uh, that's coming, where you're, you know, where, um, you know, debts are going to be canceled. If you have somebody in front of you who's poor and in need, you can't say, I'm not going to do anything because in seven years, in six years, and however long it is before it happens, all these debts are going to be canceled, right? So in other words, again, it's not just a matter of 
stating things. It's not just a matter of, you know, that the poor are cared for uh, by God's people just when it's time. It's any time, right? So this is all time. God is calling his people. One of the things that marks out the people of God is that they care for those in need. Right? So again, thinking of ourselves as all of the things that we can think about the Bible saying about God's view of the poor, that is enacted, right? It's enacted or uh, it's enacted through us, through God's people. Um, this is just more of Deuteronomy 15, 10 through 11. I won't keep reading it to you, but I would just really encourage you to make that part of, you know, sort of building your um, biblical view of the poor and poverty. Um, here's a New Testament example in Galatians 2. Um, this is when Paul and James, Cephas is Peter, right? And John, when they met uh, and they meet and they agree that they all are called to, uh, Peter's called to the Jews, Paul is called to the Gentiles, and they're all agreeing about their gospel ministry. And the one thing they said, they only asked uh, that we would remember the poor, which I had made effort, every effort to do, right? So part of the initial, and I would say ongoing, um, ministry of the gospel is to include, includes, includes taking care of the poor. And, and it's just folded in very naturally. Like Paul's like, I was already doing this and I'm happy to keep doing it. And so they just saw it immediately as an organic part of gospel ministry. Um, here's examples of Helping the poor is an act of faithfulness to God, right? This is another way the Bible speaks about um, helping the poor is that it's not just helping the poor. It is faithfulness to God. Uh, the one who despises his neighbor's sins, uh, but whoever shows kindness to the poor will be happy. Now, by happy doesn't mean like you're going to just feel good about yourself. It means like, the you know, the word blessed that you will be blessed by God. That is, you are living a life that is pleasing to him. It's not that it's not about God giving you sort of your payment. Um, like I'm going to help the poor, then God's going to bless me and make me whatever. Um, the idea is that you will be living that a life that is lived in rest and contentment with God. This is what it looks like showing kindness to the poor uh, or Proverbs uh, 1431. The one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker but one who is kind to the needy honors him so just to wrap up really quick that part of the old testament which was mostly except for galatians what we looked at the idea is that there is a mix of statements about god's view of the poor and the um the oppressed and the marginalized but it's not just statements about hey god cares about the poor it is specific statements about how God's care for the poor is expressed through the care of his people for the poor. And the other thing I want to say is this. It is a very practically oriented view of poverty and the poor. In other words, it is not just about making large-scale global policy, which most of us can't set anyway, right? And so, you know, one of the ways I like to talk about it or think about it is the degree to which we are engaged in our communities with the poor and with those in 
both you know financial poverty, those who are oppressed in various sorts of ways, uh, those who cannot help themselves, those who are helpless. The degree to which we are actually involved with the poor or with poverty around us is a good indication of how much we really mean it when we're talking about big time universal or whatever global solutions to poverty. There's just a connection, right? Because anybody can talk about global solutions. I'm, I think we should talk about them. But how much we mean it when we talk about those things, how much we mean it when we talk about various sort of historical or uh, cultural movements that have led to poverty, a sign that we're not just talking and we're not just getting on bandwagons is whether or not we're helping those in poverty or we're addressing the issue of poverty in our actual lives, right? So we can't just sort of fall into a, in, into a, into a trap of just making statements because it's clear the Bible makes statements about uh, poverty and about the poor, but it goes hand in hand with actual real people of God getting involved and not just talking. Um, you probably know this statement from Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's appointed me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And like, uh, like, the, like the text we saw earlier, uh, I would say that these things both include the poor and captives and um, the blind and the oppressed, but it's not limited to that. Um, it would, and so in other words, captives doesn't just refer to prisoners. Um, and I think the poor doesn't just refer to those who are um, socially, socially economically poor, right? It obviously includes them. And that's the big deal here, right? Is that Jesus, Jesus, what does he do? He points out specifically that he is choosing who? The marginalized, those who are passed over, those who don't have the opportunity, those who can't help themselves, those who honestly are even oppressed, right? It's not just a matter they can't help themselves. There are people actually keeping them down, whether doing it consciously or just as a result of their own sort of way of living or their policies or whatever. Notice God specifically in Christ announces, here's the people I'm coming for. And they're not the same sort of people that you usually get, who usually get attention. And they're getting all the attention. And then, in so doing, it's also pointed out that what? It's all who are in need, right? So the poor and the captives and the blind, the oppressed, they come to mean more, as we saw before, right? They come to mean more than just people who are literally in those things, but comes to be like everybody viewing themselves before God as fitting into these categories, right? So it's very, it's broad and we need to see it that way. Now here's a, here's, I'm not going to even attempt to read all these. Uh, Luke's gospel, there is a special sort of emphasis on the poor as part of Jesus's ministry. And you can, you can look at these and then, you know, this, this uh, slideshow will be available. Um, on the GMHC website if you're interested. But there's a special interest in Luke's gospel about the poor. Um, not that the other gospel writers don't emphasize it, but the big deal is, is that Jesus, who comes 
you know, making these big statements about who he is and doing these miraculous and wondrous things and ultimately finally dying on the cross and rising again for our sins is focused in on and welcoming those people who are often marginalized and that nobody cares about. In other words, the poor and the needy, um, those on the fringes, if you will, of society. In other words, not the movers and shakers, but Jesus spends time with them too. Right? We want to be really, really careful that we don't tilt the pendulum back the way or the other way or swing it back, I guess is the way to say it. Uh, Jesus spends time with the movers and shakers as well, right? But his general sort of target audience, if you will, is what? Not the same general target audience that, you know, I think most people have when they think about getting momentum or building a movement or getting followers, right? Um, Jesus, that he, he, he has a special sort of, and he's, he has a special place for the sort of people that are generally overlooked, including the poor, right? Here's more from Luke. Um, and again, I'm not going to read all these. You can, you can be looking at them. And again, it'll be available. Now, as I'm getting ready to, as I'm nearing, sort of wrapping up this kind of fire hydrant approach to, here's a bunch of Bible texts. Um, everybody's familiar with the Sermon on the Mount or Luke's Sermon on the Plain, where uh, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke, Luke, it's blessed are you who are poor. What I would argue, and I'm not arguing, what I would just say is there's not a gigantic difference between those two things. Because the point of the Beatitudes is this. And this is really, I think, if I would have said one thing today, this would probably been it. The point of the Beatitudes is this. It's not simply if you're poor, poor in spirit. If you're poor, God will bless you. The thing about the Beatitudes is this, is it reveals the shocking nature of the kingdom of God. And that is that in God's kingdom, you know who's blessed? The meek, those who are persecuted. Um, those who are poor, right? And just think about all the Beatitudes and ask yourself this, ask, ask yourself this question. In what kingdom are all those people counted as the blessed people in God's kingdom, right? So God's, God structures his kingdom in a way that in the eyes of the world looks completely upside down. But what God shows is this. It's really the kingdoms of this world that are upside down. Because God comes and builds his kingdom and says, you know who's blessed in my kingdom are all the people who are never blessed in any other kingdom, right? And, and not, not simply because they're that way, right? So in other words, being poor doesn't get you into the kingdom just by virtue of being poor. But what God is saying is this, in my kingdom, these are the people who are blessed and welcome, right? So the people that are pushed out to the margins of society in various sorts of ways, or or people in or people who seem weak, you know, the meek, um, or people who are persecuted, people who thirst for righteousness. Those people are brought into the center, and that's what God's kingdom looks like. And I think if we can get a grasp on that and understand how we ourselves have been folded into that kingdom, then we are really do have a basis for understanding our responsibilities and our vision 
of what it means to help the poor, what it means to be involved in um, helping to alleviate poverty in our areas, right, that God gives us access to, or even on larger scales, if God puts you in that sort of position, right? Uh, but we but we need to be thinking about what is it that's motivating us beyond, I would say, beyond just socioeconomic realities. Because I think if we're only motivated by socioeconomic realities, we will quickly be overwhelmed. Quickly be overwhelmed. Um, but if we're motivated by the fact that, of, of, you know, by the fact that in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, it is precisely those on the margins, those who know they can't help themselves. That is precisely who God is putting at the center of his kingdom, not because they're those, those, those things, but because that's what greatness looks like. In other words, greatness in the kingdom looks like the opposite of greatness in this world. And that gives us a distinctly Christian view of thinking about things like poverty, right? Because the Bible gives us a very distinct view of poverty and thinking about the poor and our responsibility to people. Um, the Bible gives us a very distinct and Christian way of thinking about that that is more than just, you know, making large-scale statements. Also in the Bible comes with uh, the statements on poverty are warnings to the rich, but remembering that Jesus Jesus had rich friends, uh, and Paul knew a woman named Lydia. She was rich, and Paul didn't tell her to get rid of all of her stuff. He didn't tell her to sell her things. He didn't tell her just to give it all away. Um, they made use of it in Paul's, in Paul's ministry. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the rich are warned um, because of the sort of snares of money. Right? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Uh, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. In other words, let the rich, you know, you know, in other words, I think the idea here is this. Everybody, these, I think he's talking to Christians here, by the way. Christians should be rejoicing and giving thanks to God in their circumstances. Not, and so the rich, not giving uh, the wealthy, not giving, not not simply glorying in their riches, but giving thanks to God, knowing what that they their riches are a gift from God and they they won't last, right? That they're like a they'll pass away like a flower in the field, right? This is the thing is you can't rely on riches, and this is one of the sort of repeated warnings in the Bible. Um, now. So I think that this whole thing helps us build a foundation for a theology of poverty. And that is it begins, right? It begins with, it really begins with all the things I've been saying and showing, really the things I've been showing. But it begins with this, is if we see ourselves as recipients of grace and mercy, that should, if for the people of God, transform us and result in the way we show grace and mercy to others not, and not just because we have to and not just because we give each week, but because as those who have received mercy, we should be showing mercy, right? So it's mercy and compassion, not just sort of fixing um, social wrongs. The two things can go hand in hand. So in other words, we, we address social wrongs and social ills in our society, things like poverty, um, 
we address it how from a standpoint of mercy and compassion as those who have as those who were absolutely bereft and poor having nothing of our own and no ability to help ourselves but nevertheless god in his son jesus christ saves us and makes us alive right do not deny justice to a resident alien or fatherless child this is deuteronomy and do not take a widow's garment as security remember you yourselves were slaves in egypt and the lord your god redeemed you from there therefore i'm commanding you to do this second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich right and it, there it's not obviously refer not just refer not referring simply to the fact that of jesus's socioeconomic status but that he gave everything for us and i really think that if we could get a a better grasp on the general way the bible talks about poverty and how it it makes statements about poverty but it's always sort of hand in hand with god um god calling us to reach out to those in need to those who are marginalized right it also helps us understand this that helping the poor or whatever or help or helping to alleviate poverty for us as christians means more than calling you know more than helping people that we've identified just as financially poor right it bronze it out for us uh so we have actual you know, we actually have a broader vision of what it means uh to address poverty in this world right it's not just it's not just um financial and economic status it goes beyond that and you know as those who have received mercy right so i know i've thrown just a lot of bible verses at you but again um even without listening to sort of the voiceover hopefully the slides at least will help and this is just to get things started so that we can think biblically and have a foundation for talking about poverty and the poor in distinctly christian ways that are distinctly um, informed by and shaped by and motivated by the bible so anyway hope it's been helpful and um, look forward to seeing you at the uh, question and answer time uh, when we have a, um, a live session a live virtual session here in just a few weeks peace be with you this is part two of poverty in the bible by brian vickers and nathan cook for the gmhc conference 2020 so uh, my name's nathan and uh, i'm going to be presenting the the second half of our talk today uh, brian has been talking with you about um, poverty in the bible from a very general perspective and now i'm going to focus on this key idea of the poor who lack sufficient resources for daily life and so I'm really going to be looking uh, specifically at poverty in the Bible from the perspective of how has God commanded his people to respond to people who are poor or who lack sufficient resources for daily life. And uh, one of the big, uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, one of the big influences in my life has been this man, John Perkins, who is the founder of the Christian Community Development Association and the Christian Community Health Fellowship. 
Um, there are lots of people speaking at this conference who are part of CCHF, and um, there are other great resources for those of you who are specifically working in the medical field and want to look at uh, how to address um, poverty uh, among your patients or how to use medicine uh, to address the problem of poverty. Uh, CCHF is a great um, resource for you guys, and I would encourage you to look them up on the web and uh, maybe try to connect with other uh, service providers in your area. There are about 300 CCHF clinics all across the country. Okay, so back in 1997, before many of you were born, uh, I met John Perkins and was introduced to kind of his philosophy of um, how to address poverty in inner city communities across America. And he came up with what he called the three R's of uh, community development, and they were um, relocation, meaning to live among the poor, redistribution, uh, sharing financial resources, educational resources, spiritual resources with other people, and reconciliation, which working towards uh, closing the class divisions and racial divisions in our society. And so I took uh, many of the teachings um, of John Perkins and uh, applied them to my life. And in 2002, uh, my wife and I moved into an inner city community in Memphis. This is a picture of me and little Chris, who is, uh, I think, uh, Chris was the very first person that I met in our neighborhood. And um, we moved into this community to uh, live among people who are poor and to learn from them and um, to live out the gospel in their midst. And so since that time, we've planted churches and um, ministries and worked with healthcare ministries and community development ministries um, to work towards alleviating problems of poverty. In the last couple of years, um, I've really focused on uh, listening to the poor. Probably should have started with that. Um, and also uh, looking uh, back at biblical passages um, that address poverty and seeing what we can learn from them. And so uh, that's what I want to share with you now. Um, I think this is uh, one of my favorite texts when it comes to addressing poverty just because of how direct it is and how it ties a lot of the Old and New Testament teachings about the poor together. And so I'm going to read the story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who is dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So as we look at this story together, I have a qu couple of questions I want you guys to be thinking about. So one was, what was the rich man's sin? What can we learn from the mistakes that he made? And secondly, what do Moses and the prophets teach us about how to respond to poverty? So in the story, Jesus is redirecting our attention specifically back to Moses and the prophets. He wants us to think and to understand what they're teaching us about this problem of poverty. Then what are the specific steps that we can take to address poverty from a biblical perspective? And so how does the Bible inform our response? And then finally, I want you guys to think very specifically of like how will you respond to poverty in a personal way? So we're going to begin with uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15. And so the book of Deuteronomy is basically one long sermon that Moses gives to the people of Israel as they're preparing to go into the promised land. And uh, they've just come in out in a sense of poverty themselves, that they've been um, under the oppression of uh, this political oppression of the Egyptians. And they're being, uh, they've been set free by God. And now they're going into this land that God has promised them. And really, for the first time in hundreds of years, they are going to experience prosperity. And Moses is preparing them for this. He's preparing their hearts through this long sermon of Deuteronomy. And in this specific passage, he's going to be talking to individuals within Israel and teaching them how to respond when they see and they encounter people who are poor. So this is what it says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So I think there are five key takeaways from this passage, and we'll just go through these quickly. So the first is that Moses is teaching the people to prepare their hearts to encounter the poor. He says there will always be poor people in the land. So when we get ready to go out on a night on the town, we should prepare our hearts to encounter the poor. Secondly, Moses says to freely lend. And so lending is different than giving. And we're going to talk about some of the benefits of uh, lending money to the poor when we get a little bit further along in the talk. Um, the third thing that Moses says is to don't let the risk of non-payment keep you from freely lending. And so um, when you're encountering the poor, when you're lending to the poor, it is it is risky, right? And there, the danger of non-payment, or in this passage, it's saying the the for the the danger of um, not receiving your money back because of another law that trumps this one, where 
in every seventh year, all loans were forgiven. This was helped prevent the people of Israel from falling into multi-generational poverty. Um, that Moses is instructing the people still give without necessarily the expectation that you're going to recuperate the money that you have lent. And then the fourth thing is to lend with a good heart, with an open hand and an open heart, and with a good attitude. And finally, there is the promise of blessing, that God will bless you for lending to the poor. There's also an institutional approach to addressing poverty that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 14 when he discusses the importance of the tithe. And so the tithe, um, the word tithe means tenth. We typically think of tithing as giving money to the church that pays for pastor salary, it pays for programs within the church and the building and evangelism and outreach and missions work, but that's not what tithing referred to in the Old Testament. That um, Moses instructed the people to take a tenth of their crops, their grains, and to celebrate a feast, to have a, a meal of celebration in the tabernacle or temple with the priests and the Levites in giving thanks for God's provision. And so they were to do that uh, within a seven-year period. They basically did that four times within seven years. And then in the third and the sixth year is what this passage right here talks about. It says, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So again, we see this promise of uh, God blessing people for their generosity, and he is encouraging the people to redistribute money to the poor in their time of need through the tithe. And so... Um, that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, oftentimes, doesn't happen. And so uh, there are two problems that uh, we encounter as we continue to read the Bible. At some times, um, the Israelites uh, refuse to pay their tithe, and at other times, the religious leaders of Israel take the tithe um, for their from themselves, but don't redistribute it to those who are in need. And so um, the prophets talk about poverty in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Malachi says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Okay, so here the Israelites are fearful that their needs are not going to be met and that they are refusing to bring the tithe to the storehouse. Um, and it's not the the food uh, is not being redistributed to those who are in need. So oftentimes, this passage gets reinterpreted today by pastors who use this passage during stewardship Sundays to encourage people to give to the church, promising that um, they will give spiritual food to the people in return for their tithes and offerings. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about 
uh, referring back to the tithe and is talking about literally redistributing food to those who are in need. This picture right here is a picture of uh, a storehouse, a grain bin that would be used to store the grains um, from the tithe and redistributed during times of need. And again, this passage has a promise of blessing, God's blessing upon the people for obeying his command. The prophets also address the problem of uh, religious leaders who fail to redistribute God's resources to those in need. So here in Ezekiel 34, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So here you see a picture of the probably the Levites, the religious leaders of Israel, who are taking the entire tithe and using it to promote their own luxurious lifestyle to the exclusion and harm of the poor for those who are under their care, that they are consuming all of the tithe for themselves. And so uh, Ezekiel is promising judgment. He's saying that uh, the religious leaders will be judged harshly for um, disobeying God's law. Uh, there's another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, when he's teaching about true worship and teaching the people of Israel how to worship God. Um, he talks about how they are um, singing songs and they're fasting and uh, they're congregating together to worship God, but their hearts are actually far from God. And so he's directing them to what true worship looks like. And he says, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And so here Isaiah again is directing us as individuals on how we're to respond to the poor. And he says, look how many times it says your, like we are to share our bread and to bring the homeless into our house and to clothe the, na the naked. And so um, historically, the church has done a good job, I think, from an institutional standpoint of showing love and concern for the poor through providing through soup kitchens and providing uh, through through closed closets and um, doing those things to address some of the basic needs of the poor. But really what Isaiah is saying is he's saying to do this in a personal way, right? To welcome the poor into your home, right? And um, so God really, and again, we're going to get to why this is so important, but God wants us to build relationships with the poor. It's not just, uh, poverty is not just about a lack of financial resources. It's oftentimes uh, caused by a lack of friendship, a lack of relationship um, that keeps people in poor and limits their opportunities to come out of poverty. Okay, so what was the rich man's sin? After looking at the law and the prophets, we can see that he didn't obey them. He didn't obey the teachings of the law and the prophets. He was tight-fisted. He isolated himself from the poor. Remember that um, in the in the the picture that we have is that the the rich man had a 
lived in a gated community, and the poor man was laid outside of that gate. So he isolated himself from the poor. He was inhospitable to Lazarus. You know, the passage that we just read from Isaiah talks about giving food to the poor, giving clothing to the poor, giving shelter to the poor, and to doing it in a personal way. And the rich man did none of those things. And finally, he misappropriated resources that belonged to God, that um, he probably lacked the insight, realizing that everything we have belongs to the Lord and we're simply stewards of it. So how do we then respond to the poor? What actions are we going to take? Well, the first thing, reviewing Isaiah 58 again, is that we're to take personal responsibility, to share our bread, to be in relationship with those who are homeless and poor, welcoming them into our own homes um, and not hiding ourselves from those who share our humanity with us. Um, and so uh, the Bible's approach is is very, very personal. Um, but before we go on, like in looking at things that we can do, I think, it's, again, it's important to kind of reframe and to remember. And as, as we go through these next couple of slides to think, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do? So for me, um, I kind of... In, encountered this problem of, am I actually going to take action or not when I met a man named Mario? And for whatever reason, the day that I met Mario, God had softened my heart and, and loosened my hand um, to where I was uh, more generous with my time than I, I probably would have been otherwise. And um, Mario was homeless when I met him, and he uh, was in need of a place to stay. He was in need of food. I think when I met him, he had his daughter with him, and um, he was trying to provide for, for her. And so I welcomed Mario in, and I, I sat down with him, and I listened. And um, for the next two years, I listened repeatedly to Mario as he told his story of what it was like to live in poverty. And so um, one of the things that came to the surface uh, as I listened to Mario was um, the legal structures that were meant to help people in his life were actually creating more bondage and more red tape um, that was preventing him from succeeding in providing for his family. And so I'm going to try to go through this quickly. But uh, Mario owed child support. And the way that child support works is that uh, a, you get sued to get put on to child support, and the judge will garnish your wages anywhere and take anywhere from 25 to 60% of your income. Um, the judge makes that decision not based upon your actual in earned income, but based upon how much he or she thinks that you can earn. So for Mario, that meant that he, instead of getting $8 an hour from his low-wage job that he had, um, that he was only getting $6 an hour. Okay, so regardless of whether Mario had the job or not, the, there were times in his life where he'd lose a job for a while. He had real problem with transportation problems, not being able to get to work all the time. Um, he was in and out of prison. And um, when he was in prison, the amount that he owed in child support would continue to accumulate. Uh, when he was out of a job, money would 
uh, its indebtedness would continue to accumulate to where it got to the point where you owed thirty thousand um, dollars in back pay, uh, which. Uh, in listening to Mario, found out that can't be forgiven even through declaring bankruptcy, um, and that you're not able to get a technical license uh, if you owe money in child support. And so, an HVAC technician gets paid on average $24 an hour. Uh, which, if if Mario had that money, that much money, he would be able to to live on $18 an hour and to give more to. Um, the mother of his child to, to support his child. Um, but in our state where Mario and I live, uh, you cannot get a license until you pay back the money that you already owe. So he was prevented from getting a better job, uh, paying more money until he first paid back his indebtedness, which he was not able to do. Um, and then the final thing I learned uh, in, in Mario's situation is that most states take a significant portion of child support as reimbursement for food stamp programs. So uh, the mother of Mario's child was not receiving the extra benefit of his child support um, because she filed for food stamps. And when she did so, she had to turn over the rights to her child support payments to the state, which the state then used that those payments to reimburse itself for the food stamp program. And so that's true of Every state uh, has different laws. Some pass through a portion of the money. Some pass through no money. Some pass through all of the money. Um, but in in Mario's situation, uh, the mother was only receiving fifty dollars um, of the nearly two hundred dollar two hundred dollars or so that he was paying every two weeks. So she should have been getting four hundred dollars a month. She was actually only getting fifty. So, but by listening, it uh, has opened my heart to Mario, to his plight, to see that, um, to reframe the way that I think about people who are poor and in poverty, to see his willingness to work, but how um, he had so much indebtedness that he was just not able to get out of it on his own, and that he needed someone to lend to him. He needed someone to help him. Another thing that we can do is to examine our church budgets and um, to look and see how are the religious leaders of our day uh, reappropriating God's money. Are we using that money uh, to benefit ourselves? Is all of the money that we give to the church intended to programs to support our own spiritual nourishment? How much are we giving to the poor? How much is going out towards missions work? And um I recently did a talk like this to a group of 12 people, and only one out of 12 had ever seen a copy of their church's budget and knew um, what their church was giving to. And so there's a general lack of transparency in our churches about how we're spending God's resources. And um, we know that it is a huge temptation that we see in the Bible for religious leaders to misappropriate more funds for themselves and to neglect their spiritual duties. And so one thing that we can do is to lovingly and gracefully provide accountability to our religious leaders for the way in which we're spending our church budgets. Um, another thing we can do is to build social capital. And so uh, this guy, Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And he talks about building social capital. And social capital is not about 
money. It's about relationships. And he taught, he goes at great lengths to talk about how our network of relationships um, can help people come out of poverty. Um, but that since the 1950s, we have become much more isolated from one another along class lines. And so people who are rich and people who are poor go to different schools. They have different health care systems. They live in different neighborhoods. They go to different churches. And so there's very little interaction anymore between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. And that relationships can help bring people out of poverty. So he tells a story about uh, a young man who he grew up with who was poor and wanted to go to college. Neither of his parents had ever been to college. And so his pastor helped make introductions to the college, helped him to figure out how to fill out the forms he needed to get a student loan and helped him to gain entrance into college. And so the pastor never gave the young man any money. It wasn't about money. It was about extending and building social capital so that this man could have the relationships he needed to come out of poverty. The final thing I want to talk about is we referenced earlier are giving zero interest loans. And so again, for Mario, one of his problems is that he uh, was paying about 10 or $12 um, every time he took an Uber to work that the bus system didn't go from his house to where he needed to go to work. And so he's having to take an Uber ride and it was sapping all of his income. And so uh, I practiced what I thought I understood from the Bible, which is to give a zero interest loan to him. And some of the benefits that he and I have seen from that is that by giving a loan and not just giving money, it promotes responsibility and discipline. It's given Mario and I multiple opportunities to talk about budgeting and saving and planning. Um, it's helped to keep us into a long-term relationship with one another. It's helped me to practice uh, generosity and forgiveness um, in that there have been times that he's not able to, to repay me. And I say, don't worry about it. We'll get it next time. Um, and so it, it's, but it's much more difficult, right? It's much more difficult than just giving money and walking away. Um, Zero interest loans are a biblical response to the poor, and it's a response that the church has classically taken. You can, uh, in in resisting uh, what the church called usury, which just meant interest on loans, that the church resisted that within the broader culture, um, and we no longer do that. We have, in our culture, we've given over to usury, right? And so we think that a 12 to 13 percent interest rate on a credit card is great, right? Um, but classically, that would have been considered usury and a sin against God. And so um, the Bible promotes zero interest loans between individuals, not just institutions, but between individuals to maintain relationship with the poor. And so I just want to summarize with this. I think that Brian and I are going to take questions here in just a minute. Um, but just as a summary statement for some of the things that we've talked about, I believe that the Bible calls us to be generous to the poor as a demonstration of the grace that we have received from God who promises blessing for our obedience. And so we are to give to others because God has given to us. We are to forgive others their debts because God has forgiven our debts. That in a situation with Mario where he's committed real sin, 
um, and has done dangerous things in his past to put other people in harm's way and that he has paid for that through um, going to prison and serving time for the sins of his past and yet many times he's unable to break free. It's like he's constantly having to pay in our society, constantly having to pay for the mistakes of his past. And the church promises forgiveness. The church promises a new way of life through Christ. And um, we can demonstrate God's love for us as we give and lend to the poor.